I guess working in law is like Ali McBeal, the same way that working in medicine is like ER. I mean, I... <laughs> Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala and today we're talking with Julia Salaski, founder at Crowd Justice. Welcome Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you. So we were just trying to remember when you and I first met Julia, and I think it was back in 2017 at an event celebrating women in technology. And a lot has happened since then. So what have you been up to recently? So since 2017, Crowd Justice has gone from being a really tiny, tiny startup in London to a slightly less tiny startup in the US and then back to London. What we've been trying to do in the last couple of years is both massively increase consumer access to the legal system and also increase the ability of lawyers to take on clients they wouldn't otherwise be able to take on. Also to be able to really think about how the practice of law might be changing and how consumers want to be able to get legal services more efficiently, better quality and more transparently. So you followed a prestigious educational path after studying at university in Virginia. You moved to the UK to take on a degree in politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford. You then followed that with a master's in international relations from the London School of Economics. Massive. Wow. Has anyone told you you could have been a really successful British, probably Tory, politician? You know, it's funny. Someone asked me a year or two ago whether crowd justice was some sort of springboard to politics. First of all, I was flabbergasted by the question because it had literally never crossed my mind. But I think one of the things that I love about the work that I'm doing and that the sort of tech space allows me to do or allows one to do, I think this might almost come across as somehow not self-reflective, but I think it allows one to have a really, really big impact in a way that is, at least to my mind, less constrained than a role in politics, but I think everything is possible and I would not, <laughs> I don't think politics is the route that I'm planning to take. I think one of the things as well about tech is that it allows a kind of diversity of background and education and almost a lack of interest in someone's educational credentials in a way that I find really refreshing and really different from more conservative institutions like politics and, and like law, frankly. Yeah, sort of touching on more conservative institutions, we saw that your commercial law career took you to Linklaters, famously a magic circle law firm in London. What was it like working at Linklaters and what was the most interesting case that you worked on? It was both really amazing to be with people who I genuinely thought were really smart. It was at times really frustrating because I felt like I didn't particularly fit into a, a mold that for better or for worse, and you know, perception is a powerful thing. So it might have even just been a sense of perception that I didn't quite fit that mold. To me, people are very important. And I do think at the end of the day, working with really very brilliant people was really a privilege and I learned a lot. In terms of the most interesting case I worked on, today a friend was saying that she just went to the Lehman Trilogy, the play that's on, I think, at the National. 
I was thinking about the fact that when Lehman collapsed, I got sent there as a as a trainee. Normally to unwind derivative transactions, as a trainee, I was more of a dog's body. That was, I think, one of the least interesting things I did as a in terms of work because I really was too junior to be responsible for much. But probably one of the most interesting things in terms of the social and political connotations of that like moment in time, and was recalling how I saw people with white gloves taking expensive paintings off the wall. And it just felt like even at the time, contemporaneously, a very important moment that I was sort of witnessing. And sometimes you feel like you're at the front row of history. And that sort of felt like it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. That must have been an amazing experience. I've watched The Smartest Guys in the Room and and that documentary really blows my mind in terms of the way that Lehman went all the way to the top and then their absolute dissolution at the end. It must have felt like the end of times. It really did. I still remember this, like going to the printers because there were still people who were working there, going to the printers and seeing like prospectuses for universities being printed off. It makes you reflect a lot on your career and on the path that people's careers take, especially as like a sort of less experienced professional. I found it very good moment of reflection. Yeah, so speaking of people's paths, so your big break happened when you moved to become a lawyer at the United Nations in Vienna in The Hague. We saw that you worked on a major project focusing on online dispute resolution. How did that inspire you to what you do today? Yeah, so the project I worked on was out of UNCTRAL, the UN Commission on International Trade Law, and we were trying to put together a global system for online dispute resolution. And that basically meant negotiating between like 150 government officials to try and come up with a framework for how consumers might resolve disputes online. And ultimately, it was really exciting and interesting to work with so many people from so many different governments. But I found it also really frustrating because it seemed quite delinked from how people actually interact online, how people actually buy things online, what problems people actually have in accessing the legal system. It was a great eye-opener for me because I, I went to San Francisco a few times and met with a few people who are actually building online dispute resolution systems, and they, they were relatively condescending about the work that we were doing. And it was one of the first times I really saw people solving problems using technology. The UN was such a dream job for me, and seeing people who were condescending or patronizing about the work we were doing, and they were actually building things was a kind of jolt to my system and thinking, actually, what we're doing probably doesn't have that much real world impact compared to what these guys are doing on the ground. And I think the problems that we're solving at the UN around consumers accessing the legal system probably are not the most profound problems that consumers have in in terms of accessing the legal system, because the problems we were looking at at the UN were cross-border. Consumers mostly have problems in accessing their own legal systems and not in trying to resolve problems across borders. Yeah, that frustration and also that opportunity that you recognize is definitely something that both Kamal and I can really relate to, having both worked in in Ministry of Justice in the UK and trying to navigate that massive and very traditional world of courts and tribunals and prison systems and things like that to try to do something that vaguely stands up to what people expect of the internet. So on to the exciting part of the interview and crowd justice. We read a really cool quote from, I think, a former colleague of yours, which was that just because there's a ladder doesn't mean you have to climb it. Can you tell us a bit more about how you decided to to leave your career and get started with crowd justice and what it was like in the early days? 
Yeah, I mean, I think because partly because I come from a legal background and had been a big um, institutions like the UN, um, people were very surprised that um, I decided to leave this cushy job for life. And it wasn't even just that I had decided to leave. It was that everyone around me was on the same kind of career path. And they were surprised, I think, when they reflected on the decisions that they might make, it just seemed very different. That statement really resonated with me. And now I almost think of it like a, like a quote, just that careers aren't always linear. And that was something that, especially coming from a legal background, hadn't been my experience to date. I really thought careers were quite linear. And the reason that I decided to leave and start Crowd Justice was actually partly born out of this sense that I wanted to have an impact that was bigger than what I felt like I could do in an environment where we were negotiating with a lot of governments and things were moving very slowly and things were sometimes delinked from the way that people use technology, use the internet and sort of access the legal system saying that it sounds almost egotistical, probably is a bit egotistical, but I felt like there were solutions that were more grassroots, that were more linked to reality almost, that I could just get off the ground really quick. I was very naive in retrospect as well about, you know, what it meant to start something up. But I think that naivete in some respects is important to help give that impetus to get going, because if I knew what was coming, it would be harder to imagine leaving all of that behind to go on such an uphill path. Yeah, definitely. A while ago, I came and visited you at your office a couple of years ago, and I remember how enthusiastic and how passionate all of your team were there. Can you say a bit about how you grew that team and what kind of culture you were looking to build? One of the things that is super, super important in building a startup, and it's something a lot of people talk about, there's a lot of literature on it, but it's also something that struck me probably quite late and, and almost by accident was how important it is to have a set of core values that you're hiring against that are permeating every aspect of your culture. And I think I was very lucky that at the beginning, I hired people who are just super smart and super passionate about what we were building. And those people helped me develop the culture that we have that had I been thoughtful about it, I would have done from the ground up at the beginning. And that culture is really about being solutions driven in a part of the legal sector that is sometimes really down and really can be quite negative about the fact that there are so many problems, which there certainly are. And it's also about being really straightforward and candid and just trying to push through obstacles in a way that's really positive and that's really solutions driven. Absolutely. And speaking of pushing through obstacles, you mentioned how slow moving it can be sometimes working with really big governments. Of course, Crowd Justice have enabled lots of legal campaigns around everything from Brexit to Donald Trump's temporary immigration ban, junior doctors, climate change. I read a fun interview in The Big Issue with you and they said Crowd Justice collects headlines like they're going out of fashion. And I just wondered, how do you manage all the hype and the publicity around your work with a relatively small team? Well, I think what we're doing it generates its own publicity. One of the things that we found is actually that journalists and the press really want to write about legal stories, but legal stories can be quite hard to write about because law is by its nature like a bit private and a bit, you know, people don't talk about it that much. And even lawyers who have these really exciting, really interesting cases, it's not their natural inclination to sort of go out and be public and talk about these things. So we've found that just by expressing or articulating the human story behind some of these legal cases, it's a, it's a real magnet 
magnet to journalists and it's a real magnet to journalists because people are really interested in how the law can be used to achieve things, whether those things are in relation to climate change, as you said, or Brexit or so on, or also whether they're in relation to someone whose friend is getting deported. These are really important aspects of society and they happen every single day and they happen in different forms every day and everybody has a reason why they're using the law and that tends to be really fascinating. You mentioned some cases that otherwise really wouldn't be heard if it hadn't been through the work that was supported through Cried Justice. Have you found in your experience that it's more typically underrepresented groups that tend to use the platform or is it more general than that? It's actually been a lot more general than that. And that's sort of um, not necessarily something we predicted at the beginning. But I think one of the slightly depressing things about the legal system is that it's expensive for everybody. So it's expensive, no matter sort of what your socioeconomic status, most people don't have money to spend on legal issues. And so we see underrepresented and sometimes very vulnerable people who need access to legal services, who are using crowd justice um, as a way to get access and successfully to get access. But we also see people who are, you know, by any standard, wealthy. People who are professionals can't access the legal system um, a lot of the time. And that's something that we've tried to provide a solution for because we're not means testing people. We see a huge range of people using the platform. That makes sense. But also, I guess, equally great to see that there is that kind of equality of access. And and that's something that the justice sector definitely isn't very good at providing. So that's great to hear. In our research, we, we like to kind of pick up on a couple of big ideas or interesting stories that we think you could chat to us about. And one of those is one we often talk about, which is the tech sector and underrepresentation, particularly of women and of people of color. We were doing a little bit of stocking and we were really excited to see that you have a female developer on your team. So we wanted to ask, what's your approach to hiring and, and how do you make sure that you have that representation? We do have a female developer and we would love to have more female developers. Our approach to hiring, I think part of it is actually cultural. And so our CTO is a man and he's really, really proactive about trying to find diversity within the team, trying to build diversity within the team. And so what we do in relation to hiring is we make sure that our job ads are as inclusive as possible. So we use tools like Textio. We try and recruit through different channels that might enable us to get a more diverse group of candidates. One of the things I hear a lot in the tech sector is like, oh, we just didn't have enough candidates who are underrepresented. And I think it is sometimes hard getting like a strong pipeline of candidates, especially in technical roles that are diverse. But it's not impossible. And I think sometimes one has to just really, really work to build that top of funnel. And then you will get the possibility to hire a more diverse team. And that's something that is really important to me personally. And it's something that is a cultural value that we have at CrowdJustice. It's something, as I said, we've spoken about lots, and it's great to hear that using tools like Textio, I found that really helpful myself. And you're totally right. This excuse of it's a pipeline problem, or there just aren't the people out there to hire, or you know they don't come to us, I, I feel is really lazy. And someone's just not trying hard enough to find the pockets of diverse hires. And it's great to hear that you're doing that. You've also had some experience of being in an underrepresented group yourself. We read some interviews in which you were talking about how you'd been pregnant during the early days of raising funds. How did potential investors react to that and what biases did you encounter? 
I've been pregnant twice whilst fundraising. It's like, I, I don't know, it's a bit chicken and egg. I'm not sure what comes first, the fundraising or the pregnancies. In a world where I think the stats are like 1% of VC money goes to women, it's definitely uh, extra unusual, I think, to be pregnant and fundraising at the same time. The biases that I've encountered, I actually am not sure that they're different when pregnant because it almost like makes it an issue that you can broach in a way that I think when I very first started raising money and I wasn't pregnant, an investor said to me, oh, you know, I'm not thinking this, but I just wanted to tell you because other people will be thinking, you know, you're a single female founder, that's not really investable. And in fact, when you're pregnant, you can have those conversations really explicitly with people, which are like, I'm pregnant, this is my plan. This is not something you need to be scared of. And frankly, the best investors won't be scared of that. And they'll see this as a long term partnership. They'll see this as something that, you know, they're investing in you as a person and you as a person bring your whole self to work. I think the best investors will see that as not necessarily an asset, because I think that would be optimistic. But I do think it has been an asset to me both in terms of really forcing me to think hard about how I'm running the business, what I'm like as a leader, the type of people that I'm hiring, the type of support that I have around me. And that includes investors, but that also includes, you know, really being critical around making sure that I've got, you know, the best possible team and not settling for anything less because I've got a really busy life. And now I'm especially appreciative of everyone else around me because they also have a really busy life. I think it really can be an asset certainly not the norm in terms of pitching to investors. And I think the more that men, both women, anyone who has children or family or anything outside of work in their lives makes it more normal to talk about that with investors, I think the better for everybody, no matter their gender, no matter their um, sexual orientation, no matter whether they have children or not. Thank you so much for giving a shout out to that. I would absolutely have loved to be a fly on the wall in some of those conversations. And especially just to see how people react in the first place. So thank you for representing. One big difference with where you are now, as opposed to your background with the US, is parental leave. We wanted to ask, as an expat in London, where do you think your heart lies and why? I go with my British half every time. I'm half and half. I lived in the US a couple of years ago for a year, having not lived there in a long time. And I really felt a sense of culture shock. And I think it coincided also with the, you know, I was there right at the election of Donald Trump. And that was hard. And no matter where we are in crazy politics of the UK at the moment, my heart is very firmly here in London. This was a question from Kamala, who's sadly had to drop off the interview now because of internet issues, but I'll ask on her behalf. And she wanted to know, is working in law like Ali McBeal? <laughs> I guess working in law is like Ali McBeal, the same way that working in medicine is like ER. I mean, I, <laughs> I think it's probably very thin. There's some very thin similarities, but not. I don't remember it being nearly as glamorous, no. <laughs> oh, well, never mind. So we're coming to the end of our chat now, and we always like to finish off with some recommendations that we can help our listeners discover new things. So could you start us off by recommending a podcast we might listen to? I really like a podcast called Masters of Scale, which is uh, Reid Hoffman interviewing different entrepreneurs on, on sort of a theme. And I very often learn something from it. I, I really enjoy it. Great. We'll give it a listen. Thank you. And what about a Twitter account? 
I follow Carol Codwalder, who's a journalist for The Observer and The Guardian, and she's done a lot of really amazing investigative work on issues around privacy and technology. And she uncovered the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Prior to that being uncovered by her and becoming like a real news item, we'd had on Crowd Justice a U.S. professor who'd been trying to fight with them around getting his personal data. He'd been fighting under UK laws because they're stricter. And I found his story really, really compelling. And she had sort of started, I think, via him, though I wouldn't want to misspeak there, to really uncover the kind of extent of the pernicious aspects of what Cambridge Analytica were doing. And I just think on, on Twitter, she's worth a follow. Definitely sounds like a good recommendation. Thank you. And how about a book which can be fiction or nonfiction? I mean, I literally just finished yesterday N.W. by Zadie Smith, which I really enjoyed. It's a portrayal of London life. People from different walks of life felt very present to me. I couldn't have a bigger smile on my face when you said that. I'm a huge Zadie Smith fan and I've got a big, beautiful print on my wall of the cover of N.W., which I got when I used to work at Penguin Publishing and they made this really amazing promotional material. Oh, no way! Up on my wall, it's one of my favorites. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, is it called NW6 for some reason? But no, it's called NW, right? Yeah, it's called NW. NW6 is the postcode that Zadie lives in, which I only know because I researched it and also because I used to live in the adjacent postcode up in Northwest London. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, what a coincidence. I picked it up at the bookshop the other day and just like read it cover to cover over the, basically over a weekend, which I never usually do. So it's wonderful. Well, if you haven't read it yet, her newest one, Swing Time, is also really good. Oh, I haven't. No, brilliant. Good recommendation. Thanks. And finally, a charity or a social enterprise we could support. Well, I was going to say, actually, Code First Girls. India, our engineer who you referred to, is an alum of Code First Girls. And we have a lot of strong links. We have our data analyst is also an alum of Code First Girls. And I think the work that they're doing to get more women into STEM is really cool. Great. We always love to hear some of those examples. Thank you. So Julia, thank you so much for chatting with us and persevering through what listeners won't know, but some very serious technical issues from several members of people on this interview. So thank you for sticking it out. And we had a great time chatting to you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Kelly. I really enjoyed it. Kamala, what a great interview. Unfortunately, we had a bit of a tech fail. What happened? Yeah, so I'm back in the UK after 24 hours on a plane from New Zealand. And so we're finally in the same time zone. But unfortunately, the first place I went back to is rural Essex, home of my parents. And there was a big network problem and I could barely upload a tweet, let alone get onto the network. So sad fail there, but excellent interview. Yeah, absolutely. What did you make of Julia? Yeah, Julia was so awesome. I really liked how she had real diverse career and was able to chat to us about all of it. The bit that stuck out for me at the beginning was around the work she did on the online resolution system. What I loved about that was she kind of admitted that the problem that they were working on wasn't really the problem that was the most profound. And I think that we've also had that experience of working in government. But then when you actually go and speak to real people, they're like, oh, actually, this problem isn't as big a problem as this other thing that I have. 
I thought that was really good. And having that humility is something that seems to have been a quality that she's had throughout her career. Yeah, definitely. That bravery and that humility to recognize that the idea that you started working on or the thing that you thought you were going to achieve or pursue doesn't actually work out. And the ability to step back and recognize that and pivot away from it is a real strength. That also came through when we talked about her move from the United Nations and taking the the massive leap to set up her own company. She talked about how lots of people were really, really shocked that she was leaving this job for life in this amazing and very credible organization. To leave that behind and do something that's comparably incredibly risky was really, really brave. But also you could tell that she had quiet confidence in her abilities to be able to do that. So I thought that was really, really inspirational. I also loved her talk about when she started Crowd Justice and what it was like in the early days when basically if she'd have known some of the challenges that she was going to face, probably like any startup founder, she might not have done it. Yeah, I like the story of her realising that she'd need to leave government in order to make quick and profound changes. I'm always really impressed when people decide to give up their jobs and in established careers to go and work in the private sector and try out something new. I thought that was really cool. And it's just a good reminder that anyone can do that if you really sort of believe in yourself and believe in your skills. Definitely. What was also great to hear was Julia's reflections on what it was like being a pregnant solo female founder during a funding round. And she's now done that twice. We talk a lot about diversity and inclusion on this show, and we're really passionate about that, as are lots of the people that we speak to. I thought she brought a really interesting and different perspective on it, which She framed her status in that way as an asset. And the example of as a solo female founder, some investors had said to her, well, I wouldn't say this, but some people will ask you, you know, are you planning to have a family? But actually, when you're visibly pregnant, they don't ask those questions. And it's kind of a given that if you're in the room having the conversation, then you're in it and that's acceptable to you and you're willing to commit to it as a long term endeavor. That was just a really different perspective that I don't think we've heard before. So I really loved that. Speaking of diversity and inclusion, what did you reckon to when we asked about the different types of people who use Christ justice? Yeah, I thought the comments about the types of people who use Christ justice were really interesting. She said that access to law is expensive no matter what your socioeconomic status is. So basically, even professional people needed to use crowd justice and there wasn't any means testing. So it meant that everyone could use it, which was cool and a nice example of equality of access. It really reminded me of, of the fact that with judges, I think something like 70% of them are private school educated. And the justice system is so profoundly skewed to people who are richer. Obviously, in tech, as we touched on in the interview, we've had this moment where we've really tried to change the pipeline so that it reflects the people that we serve. And it feels like maybe there needs to be a few changes in the in the justice system as well. Definitely. Given that you had to sadly drop off by the end of the interview due to your tech issues, then it was up to me to ask the most profound question about whether being a lawyer was like being an Ali McBeal. What did you reckon to that answer? Yeah, thanks so much for asking that in my stead. That was what I was holding on for for the entire interview. So I was so happy that you asked that. You know, I was expecting more comments about, you know, singing in the toilets and talking to yourself. But it seems like uh, my dream of being a lawyer and being like an Ali McBeal is not actually true. So good to know. 
And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.